Bible reading now, and it's from the letter of 2 Timothy, chapter 3, the whole chapter. So if you'd like to follow with me, pick up the um, black Bibles in the seats in front of you, and then we'll be ready for Paul. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they, but they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however... Know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thank you, Kath. Good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be here with you again, and thank you very much for that warm welcome. Um, I was going to start by introducing uh, myself, but Vic's already done a better job of that than I ever could. So uh, how about we just start by praying, and then we'll get straight into it. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've brought us all together here uh, this afternoon. Thank you that we have the opportunity to worship you. Uh, and Lord, we just pray that as we open up your word now, that you would give us ears to hear what it is you have to teach us and hearts that are willing 
and keen to uh, receive it. In Jesus' name. Amen. The end is nigh. What comes to mind when you hear those words? Well, if you're anything like me, it's probably something like this. They look like a bunch of wacky funsters, those guys, don't they? Well, it is good to see Bruce and his mates getting out in the town every now and then. (laughs) Or if you're a parent, uh, maybe uh, what you think about might be a little bit more like this. Or perhaps what you think about when you hear those words is a little bit more like this. Although, can I say seriously, if that is what comes to mind when you think about those words, then there will be a prayer team down here after the service, and they really do want to pray for you. Well, I'm glad to see Scott's shaved off his mow since that photo was taken. <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> or my personal favourite, this one, and I'm sure every cat owner can relate to that. Now, the Gospel according to Wikipedia tells us that the phrase, the end is nigh, uh, derives from a man who could often be seen walking up and down London's Oxford Street, wearing a, one of those sandwich boards which had on it the words, the end is nigh. Although apparently he also had a a smaller board which attached to the sandwich board and on that he had the words, and sitting. Now I'm sure you'll agree that doesn't really help a hell of a lot when it comes to working out what he was actually on about, but then if you're willing to walk up and down Oxford Street wearing a sandwich board with an apocalyptic slogan on it, I'm sure we shouldn't be too surprised if you're a little bit cryptic. But as odd as some of this stuff is... um, That's where Paul actually starts us off in the passage we're looking at in 2 Timothy today. Uh, We're in the middle uh, of our series on 2 Timothy. Uh, We're in the third week and we're calling this series Run the Race. The Apostle Paul was writing from a prison cell somewhere in Rome to his friend and protege Timothy, who had been uh, by Paul's side a fair way throughout uh, his preaching and church planting ministry. Uh, Timothy was overseeing the church in Ephesus at the time and Paul is writing to encourage him through some pretty difficult times. Uh, When we looked at chapter 1 of the letter, Scott showed us how Timothy wasn't to be ashamed of Paul's chains because despite what things might look like on the outside, those who are on board with the gospel have the power of God through the Spirit of God that's within them. And last week, Pete encouraged us, therefore, to embrace gospel chains and emphasise gospel claims as we cultivate a self-discipline that is both kingdom-minded and single-minded in its focus. And considering we've already started by thinking about slogans, this week's sermon has a slogan of its own. Keep calm and continue in the truth. Because as we'll see throughout the chapter, the truth really matters. Now, as I said, Paul begins chapter 3 with something of an apocalyptic slogan of his own. Open up your Bibles, make sure you've got them there, because we're going to have a look at um, the whole of chapter 3 today, and have a look with me to start with that verse 1. There will be terrible times in the last days, he tells Timothy. It sounds like the introduction to your classic end-of-the-world prophecy, doesn't it? Something you might expect to read in the book of Revelation, perhaps, or pretty much anywhere on the internet these days. Um, That is, of course, until we recognise that when Paul uses the term last days, he's actually talking about the present, not something we're still waiting for. You see, for your average Jewish believer, the thing that would characterise the end of the world is resurrection from the dead. 
And so when the resurrection of Jesus happened, according to Paul, the end of the world began. There's no going back. It's like grand final day and the second half is already underway. The next stop is the end. We're in the last days. And so when we read about these terrible times at the start of chapter 3, Paul's talking about things we should expect to see right now. And if we look carefully, they're not apocalyptic events, they're human character traits. In Ephesus at the time, these traits were pretty clearly on display and that's equally the case for us here in 21st century Manly, I think. I mean, as we look at the things that Paul lists in verses 2 to 4, no less than 18 of them, it's so easy to recognise our world in that, isn't it? Think about what you would see if you turned around and looked out the double doors at the back of the church. Now, I want you to imagine what that scene would have looked like at midnight last night. What sort of things do you think you'd see out there on the Corso? Now, keep that picture in mind as I highlight just a few of the traits that Paul lists in verses 2 to 4. People will be lovers of themselves, abusive, unholy, without self-control, brutal, rash, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And those are just the tip of the iceberg. It's pretty easy to see the world out there in the picture Paul paints in here. Mind you, if you're the parent of a teenager or maybe even a three-nager, it's a relief to see in verse 2 that those things weren't that different back in the first century after all. They were still disobedient to their parents back then. But before we all get too smug, let's have a look at who Paul is actually talking about here. Look at verse 5 with me in your Bibles. Having a form of godliness, Paul says, but denying its power. These are people who, for all the world, look like they're Christian. These people have a kind of Christian belief, a form of godliness, but one that is completely devoid of the power that exists in true faith. So while it is true that the world out there exhibits the kind of characteristics we see in verses 2 to 4, verse 5 tells us that Paul is really talking about some of the people in the church. It's pretty clear, therefore, that we need to be tending to our own backyard before we get too judgmental. But who are these people? And what does Paul mean by denying its power? Well, chapter 2 showed us that one of the key problems facing the Ephesian church was the presence of false teachers. And it's clear that these false teachers were keen to evangelise the rest of the church into their way of thinking. Sadly, their teaching was running, uh, ruining those who listen, making people more and more ungodly and producing quarrels, as Paul told us in, verse two, in chapter 2. You see, as soon as you get the gospel wrong, you get life wrong too. The real gospel message calls us to die to all of those selfish behaviours that Paul lists in verses 2 to 4. But the gospel these false teachers were promoting was actually resulting in those behaviours. But worse than that, it actually misleads others as well. And we see that in verses 6 and 7. You see, in Ephesus at the time, one of the tactics that these false teachers were employing was to get themselves invited into people's homes while the men were out working and try to influence the women into accepting their own quasi-Christian beliefs. 
They were theological con men, if you like, going from home to home selling spiritual snake oil. But unlike snake oil, what they were selling had serious and lasting side effects. Eternal side effects, in fact. And that's why Paul is opposing them so strongly. That's something we're all susceptible to, really, isn't it? It's no use us sitting here thinking we're immune from quacks and charlatans like that. If anything, with the advent of the internet, we're even more susceptible. Particularly when the message they're presenting sounds more exciting or less challenging than what we're being taught in church. You see, it'd be easy for someone like Bruce to stand up here each week and say, it doesn't matter what you think about God, really, just as long as you turn up on Sunday and say you follow Jesus. Something that's easy to believe. Something that doesn't challenge people. But the problem is it wouldn't be true. And that's what Paul is rejecting here. In verse 7, he says, these teachers oppose the truth. And as a result the people they were influencing were never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. What a tragedy. I'm sure these teachers thought that they were doing the right thing, although clearly their methods do leave a lot to be desired. But if what you're teaching doesn't contain the truth and the whole truth of the gospel, then it's worse than useless, Paul says. It's damaging. See, the truth really matters. As many of you all know, in a former life, I spent uh, about 10 years working as a media manager for the New South Wales government, um, which in layman's terms means that I was a spin doctor. Now, by those laughs, I know what you're thinking. You're all thinking, how could that lovely Paul Searle fellow do something so reprehensible? Yes, spin doctors sit somewhere down with used car salesmen in the list of least trustworthy professions, I know, just below axe murderers. Um, And the thing is, I reckon people have the impression that when it comes to twisting the truth, it's the spin doctors who are to blame. After all, it's the journos who are really after the truth, isn't it? Well, with the greatest respect to any journalists out there, particularly Catherine Welling, who I uh, hold in the highest esteem as both a journalist and as a person, That wasn't always my experience. See, I actually found that it was regularly the other way around. Journalists would often come to me for comment um, about a claim which turned out to be completely untrue, although they may not have known it at the time. And because I worked for the planning department, it would usually go something like this. Um, Bill Bloggs from Newcastle is telling me that the state government has signed off on plans from BHP to demolish his heritage-listed home so that they can build a coal mine. What does the government have to say for itself? Uh, And even though we would go away and research it and then find out it wasn't true and often write back stating that the claim was categorically untrue, we would regularly wake up the next morning to an article that went something like this. The New South Wales government has signed off on plans from BHP to demolish a heritage-listed home in Newcastle to clear the way for a planned new coal mine. Newcastle resident Bill Boggs claims... And so it would go for column after column until finally near the end of the article, the journal would write something like, a spokesperson for the New South Wales government denies the claims. As if that was supposed to make the story balanced. Now, if you were a member of the public who read that story, wanting to come to an understanding of the truth, you would have been seriously misled. And after 10 years of dealing with that sort of thing, there are now only three parts of the newspaper I can really be bothered reading anymore. The sports section, because I love my footy. 
uh, the opinion pages, because people who are writing there aren't actually claiming to present the truth, and the Manly Daily property section, because <laughs> everyone knows they employ the best journos going around. Isn't that right, Catherine? You see, while it might be important for us to understand the truth about the state government, how much more important is it to know the truth about God and what he's done to save us? What Paul's saying here is that when it comes to the gospel, the truth really matters. But if you set yourself up in opposition to the truth, verse 8, then you've already lost and the folly of opposing God will be clear to everyone. But Timothy is to be different, Paul says. The start of verse 10 is so emphatic. But you, it simply says in the Greek. And it's the same again at the start of verse 14. You, however, is how we get it in our Bibles. But either way, Paul is setting up a really strong contrast here. These false teachers are characterised by all of those 18 terrible things he listed at the start of the chapter. But you, Timothy, you're not to be like that. You're to be like, what? Well, like me, Paul says. Which might sound a bit arrogant at first, until we realise the sort of lifestyle that Paul's calling Timothy to. Why would Paul remind Timothy of his own life here? Has he just drifted off down memory lane, keen to reminisce about the good old days of floggings and stonings and fleeing from town to town to avoid being killed? No, the reason he's reminding Timothy of his own life is because we test the authenticity of the message by the character of the messenger, don't we? Paul says, look at these guys over here who are promoting a false gospel. Where has it led them? It's led them into debauchery and selfishness and godlessness. But now remember me. My message worked itself out in a real sense of purpose, in faith and patience and love and endurance. It resulted in persecution and suffering. And why are those things important? Because they're exactly the things that characterise Jesus' life too. After all, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10. He came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19. Yes, Jesus had a real sense of purpose. But he had faith too, didn't he? Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, he said in the Garden of Gethsemane. But not my will, but yours be done. Yep, Jesus certainly had faith. And Jesus had patience too. I mean, he even volunteered to run Sunday school for other people's kids. Let the little children come to me, he said. And he even had to listen in as Thomas said, you know what, unless I can put my finger in the nail marks in his hands, I'm just not going to believe it. Yet graciously and gently, Jesus simply said, put your finger here, Thomas. Stop doubting and believe. Yet... Jesus definitely had patience. And of course, the same can be said of the rest of the things that Paul lists in verses 10 and 11. And so Paul, quite rightly, in verse 12, says that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will likewise be persecuted. This isn't Paul trying to explain away his unfortunate circumstances, chained up like he is as a common criminal, 
uh, as if that's something to be ashamed of. No, this is Paul rightly identifying that the marks of authentic Christian ministry are not popularity and people-pleasing and making claims that are as inoffensive as possible. The authentic Christian life will be one that bears the hallmarks of Jesus' own life. Imitate me, Paul says to the believers in Corinth. Why? Well, not because I'm super holy, but because I imitate Christ. But why would we want to embrace a life of suffering? When we can embrace something that's so much easier to believe and which will attract so many more people to the cause. Well, the answer lies in the very next verse. Look with me at verse 13. While evildoers and impostors, that is, the false teachers, will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Again and again in this passage, Paul is emphasising what we've been saying all along. Truth really matters. And the false teachers in Ephesus are perverting it. Sure, they're presenting a gospel that's easy to believe. Sure, they're calling people to a life that seems so much more fun. But it's not actually true. Remember, the word gospel means good news. If the truth is that we're completely incapable of saving ourselves, and the Bible is very clear that it is, then any gospel message that takes our eyes off the one who is capable of saving us ceases to be good news. Anything that downplays the self-sacrifice of the cross and instead makes us look at the self-centeredness of our culture ceases to be good news. Anyone who peddles a gospel such as that, in the words of verse 13, is deceiving and being deceived. They simply don't have the truth. And the truth, as Jesus himself tells us, will set you free. In fact, it's the only thing that can set us free from the chains of sin and death that bind us all. Without the truth, you're going from bad to worse, Paul says. The truth really matters. But how do we know the truth? Well, that's what Paul spends the last few verses of this chapter talking about. He urges Timothy not to be swayed by the latest fad of teaching, but, verse 14, to continue in what he has learned and become convinced of. This is just one of a long list of similar commands that Paul gives Timothy right throughout the letter. In chapter 1, he tells him to keep the pattern of sound teaching and to guard the good deposit. In chapter 2, he tells him to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, to entrust the things you have heard me say, to remember Jesus Christ, to keep reminding God's people. And by contrast, the false teachers have departed from the truth. These encouragements to Timothy are all words that speak of a steadfast commitment to the things he's learnt in the past. And now Paul tells him to continue in them. But there's a boringness to the idea of continuing, isn't there? I mean, it's not very often you see a big headline on the front page of the newspaper saying, stop the press, business as usual today. It just doesn't happen. There's an excitement to things that are new, isn't there? We're always looking for the next big thing, the latest iPhone or the next phenomenon to get on board with, like Pokemon Go. But when it comes to the truth, that's exactly what Paul is warning against here. If you already have the truth then the last thing you need is something new, something different. What you need to do is to actually hold on to what you've already got. And where does Paul say we have the truth? 
Verse 15, the Holy Scriptures. By which, of course, Paul meant the Old Testament. That boring, old-fashioned truth which might not come with bells and whistles and a 12-megapixel camera. But it does, verse 15, make you wise for salvation. I recently had the uh, dubious pleasure of listening to a couple of sermons that were preached by the pastor of an American megachurch, which will remain nameless. Um, Now, generally speaking, what this guy believes is generally pretty solid. Uh, He has a form of godliness, no doubt about it. Uh, In fact, the sermon he was preaching was a heartfelt call to those who had previously had a bad experience of church to come back to the faith and give it another shot. And amen to that, I say. But here's the thing. In this sermon, he was so keen to see people come back to the Christian faith, he had managed to completely pervert it. He was willing to set the bar as low as possible, as low as was necessary, and remove pretty much any obstacle that people felt was in their way, including the Bible itself. Let me quote you one of the things that he said in this sermon. He said, If you never opened the Old Testament, if you didn't own an Old Testament, if suddenly the entire Old Testament Jewish scriptures vanished from Christianity... It would do nothing to undermine Christianity. Now, based on what we've just read in verse 15, or anywhere else in the New Testament for that matter, I don't think the Apostle Paul could agree with a single word of that. These are the scriptures that are able to make you wise for salvation, Paul says. Sure, those of us who have ever wrestled with a particularly tricky section of Leviticus or struggled to get our head around some of the more brutal parts of Joshua or throwing our hands up in despair at the prospect of trying to decipher some bits of Daniel, might want to heave a big sigh of relief when we hear that pastor's words and think, oh, thank goodness, I can just relax and read the Gospels. But the problem is, Jesus himself said that he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfil it. The Old Testament isn't an obstacle to faith in Jesus. It's the only way we can properly understand Jesus. One American commentator I heard discussing that particular sermon said about those words that they were, and I quote, simply incoherent hooey, which Eric Miller might understand, but um, when translated into Australian means, that's crap, mate. (laughs) And I hope that if you've sat under the teaching here at St Matthew's for any length of time, you would want to say that that's crap too. I mean, earlier this year, we worked our way through the book of Exodus, didn't we? Now, imagine if that book didn't exist and you opened up your nice, cosy New Testament to 1 Corinthians 5 and read these words. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. I think you might be more than a little confused, right? You see, there were 32,000 people in that pastor's congregation that day. We don't often get 32,000 people here at St Matthew's. Although during the Christmas Eve services, it can certainly feel like it, particularly when it's 35 degrees and there's no air con and the aroma of um, camel dung is wafting through the doors. But um, in this guy's church, there are 32,000 people, 32,000 souls seeking salvation, 32,000 fallen human beings desperate to hear the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did they get? Incoherent hooey. See, the truth really matters. 
Another time when this same pastor was being interviewed, he was asked, if you were the evangelical pope, what would you do? Now, leaving aside the fact that the idea of an evangelical pope is patently ridiculous, the question is really asking, if you had ultimate authority within the Protestant church to do one thing, what would it be? Well, listen to what he said. He said, I would ask preachers and pastors and student pastors to get the spotlight off the Bible and back on the resurrection. Now, there is nothing wrong with the resurrection. In fact, it's crucial. After all, if Jesus has not been raised, then our faith is in vain and we of all people are most to be pitied. But to suggest that you focus on the resurrection by downplaying the Bible is just as ridiculous as the idea of an evangelical pope. Maybe he just thought, oh, we'll ask a stupid question and get a stupid answer. But can you see what's going on there? By trying to remove any possible objection to Christianity, he's even removed the truth. You know, the Sydney Anglican tradition, which St Matthews is a part of, often gets accused of worshipping the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Bible. Now, even though sarcasm is the lowest form of wit, there's usually a kernel of truth to any caricature and we all need to be careful not to make an idol out of this pile of ink and paper. That much is true. We must worship God as he truly is, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But the problem with the charge, of course, is that it's the Holy Spirit himself who inspired the Scriptures. As the Apostle Peter says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's the same point Paul is making here in verse 16, when he says, all scripture is God-breathed. The word for breath there is actually the same as the word for spirit. And the scriptures are God's own words that point us to his son, who after his resurrection took his own disciples aside and showed them how the scriptures testify to himself. Now, that would have been a pretty good Bible study to be a part of, I reckon. There wouldn't have been any going off on strange tangents in that one, I reckon. So, sure, we should focus on Jesus and his resurrection, as the pastor said. But how do we learn about Jesus and his resurrection? Through the Bible, isn't it? Whether you get your gospel teaching here at St Matthew's, or online, or in a book a friend gave to you, Paul wants to emphasise that the only gospel which contains the power of God is the one laid out in the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. So test what you hear against the Bible and make sure it is God's truth, because the truth really matters. None of which is to say that you'll never encounter things in the Bible that you struggle with. I mean, this book right here will confront and challenge us more than any other. There'll be times when you find yourself saying, you know what God, I just don't think I can bring myself to agree with you on that. Or, you can't be asking me to do that, God. That's too hard. That will happen to all of us at times. There's no doubt about it. But rest assured, you're not the first to feel that way. In John's Gospel, he recounts a story where Jesus had presented a particularly difficult teaching. And people started abandoning him left, right and centre. This is a hard teaching, they said. Who can accept it? So Jesus turned to his closest disciples and said, you don't want to leave too, do you? At which point Peter famously responded, who will we go to? You have the words of eternal life. 
So Paul's teaching here isn't only for Timothy, it's for us too. It's true that we're not all Timothys, we're not all called to vocational ministry, but we are all followers of Jesus, who will, from time to time, come across false teaching that attempts us to adopt an easier gospel. One that doesn't require self-sacrifice, for example. We're all followers of Jesus who will, from time to time, read things in our Bibles that we struggle with, that just don't make sense. But when those things happen, and they will, what we all need to do is to keep calm and continue in the truth. And the best way for us non-Timothys to do that is to find Timothy, who has been instructed in the truth. In our context, that means maybe in the first instance your Bible study leader, or it could mean Bruce or Scott or any of the other qualified ministry staff who will be able to correctly handle the word of truth and make use of it in teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us and training us in righteousness. But don't just seek them out for a one-off question. Why not get alongside them in some of the ministry opportunities that are here at St Matthew's? Like Timothy did with Paul, or like Bruce and Scott did with the men who shaped their own journey of faith. Rub shoulders with them, see their faith in action, question them, challenge them, learn from them. And when we do, we'll see the true gospel in action, the gospel that has the power to save. And we will be thoroughly equipped, not just to combat false teaching, but for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we do thank you uh, for your word of truth that you've given us in the scriptures. Lord, we do pray that we would hold fast to the truth that you've given us, that we wouldn't be tempted by the latest fads of teaching that uh, try to make the gospel easier for us. And Lord, we do pray that when we come across passages that challenge us and we struggle with, Lord, that we would uh, turn to those around us uh, to be encouraged by their understanding of the scriptures and to see the truth of your gospel more clearly. So Lord, we pray that as we grow in this way, we might bring greater and greater glory to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.